I've got so many things I'd like to say, but also got a sermon to preach, so I was trying to figure out how important it is to say the things I'd like to say as opposed to preaching the things I ought to preach. We had a phenomenal service this morning, and it's part of an investment that you made. Nathaniel and Lynette Steinbart were commissioned by our church this morning to head to Africa. They'll be heading out February 8th. And uh, I'm so excited about the ministry that God has given them and the doors of opportunity God has made available to them. Also, I'm very encouraged by what I saw your church do in light of all that this nation has faced in the last several months and your Christmas, what'd you call it, extravaganza? Is that close? What was it called? Yeah, festival. Extravaganza festival. Wow. It takes vision, it takes leadership, it takes a lot of hard work to believe that God can use your church in spite of the adversity that seems to be there, closed doors that seem to be around you. I've always appreciated that about this ministry. Also want to say that I watched the weather a lot closer than I did three years ago. It's taken me three years to get here for this. I was invited to come in 2017 and it snowed. And uh, Interstate 65 was closed. And my wife, being smarter than I am, said, I don't think you should go. I said, why? I've been on the Interstate 65 for six hours sitting still with two van loads of teenagers. Surely I can do it all by myself, but it was probably the right decision. So here I am, three years later, different sermons, but uh, still a passion to see God use this time to challenge hearts. I am excited about what God has given me to preach, and I trust that you will make every effort to be here. I know it's easy to let the days slip by and kind of decide what we are and aren't going to do, and I know that I'm not necessarily the greatest preacher in the world, but I do believe that God has given me messages for this time in history and for this church at this time. I loved preaching for the stewardship or whatever the campaign was that you uh, were doing to raise funds to redo this auditorium. I love what you've done with the place. I'd like you to come and do that at my church. Uh, get things kind of straightened out if you wouldn't mind. And go ahead and raise the money too if you would. I'd appreciate it. Well, I've got something I've got to push here. Wow, it works. They promised me it would. I want to talk about life's journey. And even though this message is more academic and maybe not as stirring or as exciting as some messages might be, I am very concerned that we have lost our way because we have failed to connect with what God wants to do in our lives. Seems like sometimes we're in a barren wilderness, set on a path, a journey that is leading nowhere except into more trials, testing, and difficulty. 
We often do not see the fruit in our life that we would like to see and don't see the power of God as we should have it. We struggle with sin that we should long ago have conquered. Our dispositions are not what they ought to be. We get consumed with the world and the things that are taking place in the world. We find ourselves discouraged, even depressed. I read some t- statistics just earlier this week that overwhelmed me with how the events of the last 10 months have affected our nation and affected people in our nation. And I fear that many Christians are right there with the rest of the people. We should be able to see things differently and we should be able to focus differently. What I am doing tonight, I actually did for our high school chapel a few months ago, beginning of last semester, have developed it a little bit more, but trying to help them understand if they do not get connected to God by the means that God has given us to be connected to him, we are going to be frustrated, we are going to fail, we are going to struggle, we are not going to see victory, we are not going to see God use us. And my burden usually when I teach about this subject is that I have to bring people along and have to get them connected. But here my concern is that you've heard it so often, you're going to disconnect. And I'm challenging you to think seriously about what I have to say. All of us have the feeling at some time of needing a best friend. Could not think of a better picture to depict this. There's nothing more amazing to me that mortal enemies, dogs and cats, get along so well. I grew up on a farm and they slept together, they played together, they wrestled together, they bit each other, scratched each other while the cats did the scratching, the dogs did the biting. But they basically got along. And I think sometimes we think if we could just find that perfect friend that would be there for us, could answer our questions, could help us, could encourage us, could give us some direction, some advice, that things would be all right. And it's for that reason that I think God has directed me to this message. I believe God wants us to understand again the importance of embracing the very best friend that we could possibly have. And the question is, who is that best friend? I have a person in the church that told me once, Pastor, if you have one good friend one time in your life, it's more than a lot of people have. We have surface friends, we have sort of friends. Sometimes those friends are about as good as the friends of the prodigal son. Sometimes those friends are more helpful than that. But still, they're not really there for us and do not have the answers we need when we face circumstances in life. One of the biggest struggles that I have as a pastor, and I'm sure your pastor would identify with this as well, is on teaching what good friends have taught people who then eventually come to me for counsel. Because we have a tendency to talk off the cuff. We have a tendency to speak to people based on our emotions or our opinions. 
or things that we've tried that seem to work, but it's very pragmatic. You never really get down to the truth of what God tells us. You never really get to the place where they hear what they really need to hear, and so eventually life falls apart. And they come to somebody like myself and say, what can I do? What should I do? You've probably heard the quote, for all sad words of tongue or pen, the saddest of these, it might have been. 1856, John Greenleaf Whittier. The poem was about a judge who stopped to rest his horse, found himself engaged in conversation with a poor country girl as he asked her for a drink from the bubbling spring. They chatted for a while, then that moment came where because they didn't know each other that well, it was kind of uncomfortable, and they nervously said their goodbyes, and he went on his way. But as they parted company, the poor country made thought of the wealth that would be hers and the ways she could use that wealth to help the poor in her neighborhood and better her own life. Unknown to her, the judge found himself also thinking about that brief meeting and what life might have been if they had somehow developed a relationship and he could be out in the open fields listening to the lowing of the cattle and the song of the birds instead of the words I quote of weary lawyers with endless arguments in the courtroom. Later in life, married to others, they both looked back wishing they had let that chance meeting develop into a meaningful relationship that would have resulted in their marriage. And so the poem Maud Mueller ends with these lines. For of all sad words of tongue or pen, the saddest of these it might have been, ah, well, for us all, some sweet hope lies, deeply buried from human eyes. And in the hereafter, angels may roll the stone from its grave away. Don't know that his theology is exactly right. But there is a relationship that needs to be developed between us and the Holy Spirit of God. He should be our best friend. He gave, God gave his spirit to us. When you ask Jesus to save you. But instead of appreciating his presence, we sometimes get grieved or irritated or aggravated with his advice. And we end up quenching his voice of conviction and we grieve him when our stubborn and willful ways are contrary to the advice that he gives us. I'm going to stop a few times in this message and I'm going to repeat myself, but I'm saying that I fear that we as Christians are not living near the powerful lives that we could live. We are not experiencing the victory we could have. We are not understanding the circumstances of life around us. We are not developing within us an understanding of how God can use us in unsettled and uncertain times. Our lives somehow become settled and they become predictable and we're comfortable with that. And God brings things into our nation and into our lives and into our community and into our homes and into our families that we don't know how to handle. But because we have pretty much gotten along on our own, going our own selfish and willful ways, 
giving a nod to the Holy Spirit at times, but not really walking in the power of the Spirit of God. We find ourselves struggling with some of the simplest decisions. Even after we're saved, we're so quick to rush forward in the details of our life that we don't allow the relationship with the Holy Spirit to really develop. The judge had his business to get back to. The maiden had her fields to continue to harvest. And the relationship never developed. And I'll tell you, Pastor Van Gelderen, one of the most frustrating things to me is to be in the ministry and be busy in spiritual work and recognize that that relationship with the Holy Spirit hasn't really been developed, that I'm struggling. Doesn't take long for my wife to pick up on it. Doesn't take long for the staff to pick up on it. But I'm saying that we get careless. And regardless of what we think God has in purpose, has purpose for us in the circumstances that we're facing in our nation. Wednesday, I'm sure, put many people in a tailspin. COVID and the resurgence of it, another strain yet again. Mandates and requirements and expectations and the promise of 100 days of masking and the promise that this will be the darkest winter ever by our presumed president-elect Joe Biden. I don't know if he's announcing that he's not going to be a very good president or what. But someday the angels are going to roll away the stone, the trumpet's going to sound, and the graves are going to be open. And we are going to stand before God, and we are going to find ourselves wishing that we had allowed the Spirit of God to direct our lives, to empower us, to give us wisdom, to give us help in our day-by-day affairs, that we had paid more attention to his prompting, that we'd been a little bit more careful to listen to his convicting, that we would have been a little bit more wise to respond to him in his whisper in those moments when we chose to do something that was foolish, unnecessary, ungodly. And we are going to stand before a holy God and we're going to stand before Jesus Christ, the righteous judge, and we're going to find ourselves saying one thing. It might have been, but it never really was because we didn't learn to walk in the power of the Spirit of God, yielded to him, empty of self. As Dr. Jim says so effectively, learning the 0-100 life, 100% God in zero us. Isn't it amazing how we get in the way and think we have better ideas than the best friend that we could ever have? So I want to ask ourselves a question this evening. Why do we sin? Because that's the bottom line issue. Why do we sin? In one obvious response, there's two reasons. We're not saved. I'm not here to try and convince you that if you're sinning, you're not saved. I'm here to say that one of the reasons we sin is because we're not saved. Ephesians chapter 2 makes it very clear that those who are not saved are dead in trespasses and sins, and they walk according to the course of this world. They do things that bring the wrath of God 
upon people. Folks, we can't get around that sinners do what sinners do. They're not saved. But the concern I have this evening, which is probably true for most of us, is that we sin because we ignore the best friend that we've ever had. This I say then, Paul pens to the Galatians, walk in the spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. He goes on to say, for the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary, the one to the other, so that we cannot do the things that we would. Christians sin because the Spirit of God is not in control of their life. Anytime the Spirit of God is in control, Christians will not sin. Anytime the Spirit of Christ that is being given to us, dwelling within us, governs our life and dictates our decisions, our choices, we will not sin. He is the Holy Spirit of God. He is a wise counselor. He is incapable of darkness, for he is totally light. So if we sin, we're either not saved or we haven't developed that relationship with the Holy Spirit. Most of us know what it's like to have a special friend, a person, a true friend, a close friend. We like to be with them. We like to talk to them. We like to text back and forth. We interact. A close friend, a true friend is one that we spend time with, but a true Christian friend also confronts us with our wrong behavior, do they not? If your friend will not confront you with your wrong behavior, they're not a friend. Period. So if there's a time that we did admit that God to God that we're a sinner, that we need Christ as our Savior, we've come to him for his saving grace, turning from self to Christ alone. Then obviously we're God's children. It's not a professionally studied statistic, but approximately 80% of all teenagers I worked with as a youth pastor got saved again and again and again and again because of inappropriate teaching of 1 John. 1 John is telling us that if we abide in Christ... If the Spirit of God is in control of our life, we will not sin because Christ doesn't sin. But if our flesh is in control of our lives, we're going to sin. And it's not going to do any good no matter how many times you get saved. It's not going to do you any good if you do not learn to develop a relationship with the Spirit of God who the moment that you get saved is in you and you are sealed with him. And in that moment, he becomes the best friend that you could ever have. Our sin is because we have not embraced our best friend. Turn with me to John chapter 14. I will give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. I know Dr. Rick Flanders teaches on this often. But I just want to keep it down on the bottom shelf as best I can for us this evening and help us understand that it's one thing to know that we've been sealed with the Spirit of God. 
It's one thing to know that that Spirit of God is with us and He's in us. It's another thing entirely to walk in the Spirit so that we don't fulfill the lust of the flesh, to yield to the Spirit, to surrender our lives to God, to be empty of self, that the Spirit of Christ might be in control. Father, I pray that you would help us as we see these principles from John 14 to embrace them, to review in our mind if somehow we've possibly forgotten about our best friend, if we've somehow set him aside or casually, maybe unintentionally ignored him, have become careless and thoughtless in our walk and go through life without any thought or concern or consideration day after day about the Spirit of God who is with us because he's in us. Lord, help us to consider what you have for us this evening, I pray in Christ's name, amen. As I look at John chapter 14, I notice just reading down through these verses that the Spirit of God is, first of all, a promised friend. I will give you a comforter. I'll send him to you. I'll pray the Father. In John 14 and verse 16, and I will pray the Father and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. The disciples are obviously troubled because Christ has told them that he's going to go away, that he must be crucified and suffer many things in Jerusalem. And in the midst of the troubled hearts and the uncertainty of the future, having hope for a political leader, somebody that would deliver them from Roman rule, Certainly, whatever their perception was of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, it's not what he was talking to them about now. And I would have to say that many things in life in the last year have changed significantly. I am literally grieved when I think about where our church was a year ago. What we were talking about and envisioning in January and February and all of a sudden March came. And without an announcement without any encouragement for people to stay home from the pulpit, two-thirds of the congregation disappeared. We didn't know what we were facing, and I have some understanding of that. I'm just saying things changed. The momentum changed. I know a lot of you don't know me that well, but I have a hard time sitting still. I'm always thinking, okay, if we can't do that, then let's do this. If we can't do this, well, let's try this. In many ways, the challenges of COVID did bring us into the 21st century. But all of us know that the church scattered is not the church gathered. The church scattered is not the called out assembly, the ecclesia that Christ intends it to be. Easter Sunday was the first Sunday that our church was unofficially closed. We took it one week at a time, and I sat on the platform of our church with the auditorium empty. The doors were unlocked. A few people wandered in. The sound people were there. I could not possibly face the reality of what was going on without being in my pulpit on Sunday, preaching two services like I always did. I asked people to text me, left my phone in my pocket. And I'll tell you, just the vibrating of the phone in my pocket encouraged me to preach with all the fire I typically had. 
But before I got up to preach that Sunday, sitting right over here on the platform, I found myself sobbing like a baby because the sheep weren't there. I didn't even know if I had a pastor's heart until that moment. Kind of joking, but it's like, wow. Fortunately, it was only two weeks and people began to come back. But I'm telling you, things have changed. And in the midst of that change, we better get a hold of the fact that when life is uncertain and we cannot predict the future and we don't know what the stock market's going to do and we don't know what our 401ks are going to be like and, and we don't know this and we don't know that, we better be sure that we know the best friend that we have. I want you to turn to Proverbs chapter 1. There's a number of verses in Proverbs that just absolutely get me excited, and this is one of them. Solomon, of course, writing to his son, pleading with him to listen, pleading with him to receive instruction, to give his heart and mind to the things that Solomon was saying to him. It is, of course, God's letter to us, pleading with us to listen to him. As he instructs his son to listen to him and to not listen to the ungodly. If sinners entice you, first 10, consent thou not. You see, parents, we will listen to the godly or the ungodly. We'll listen to the righteous or the unrighteous, and so will our children, and we ought to mind that. But in verse 20, Solomon speaks, Wisdom crieth without. She uttereth her voice in the streets. She crieth in the chief places of concourse, in the openings of the gates. In the city she uttereth her words, saying, How long, ye simple ones, will ye love simplicity? And scorners delight in scorning, and fools hate knowledge. Turn you up my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit. These are the very words of Christ. This is the promise of God to us. We have a promised friend. Joel gave that promise. Peter quoted that promise in Acts chapter 2, and the power of God fell on the early church. And this world's never been the same. He's a promised friend. But I want you to notice also he is a present friend. According to Proverbs 1, 20 and 21, he is everywhere we go. Cries without, utters her voice in the streets. Crieth in the chief places of concourse in the openings of the gates. In the city she uttereth her words saying, how long will you love simplicity? I'm going to give you a little bit of advice as parents. You have children that pretend they don't know what they're doing is wrong. If they're saved, I would suggest that you begin to talk to them about the presence of the Holy Spirit and that he already told them that what they're doing is wrong. I know their perspective is seriously skewed and tainted. But I've been amazed at how many times somebody has come to me and wants to debate or discuss or bring up something. I say, why are you talking about that? Well, because I know that's what you believe. I said, I haven't talked to you about that ever. 
And I look them straight in the eye and I say, the person that's talking to you is the Spirit of God. Maybe I'll listen to him and quit arguing with your pastor. Our children do the same thing. They pretend that they don't know what they're doing is wrong, and we do the same thing. We taught them how. We pretend that we don't know what we're watching is wrong or what we're saying is wrong or the attitude we have is wrong, but we do know it's wrong because the Spirit of God is in us, and he's telling us. He's a present friend. It's amazing to me. I just went through this for the sermon I preached at our church this morning. But every single declaration of the Great Commission, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, every one of them comes with the promise of God going with us. And that's in the presence of his spirit. Folks, if we don't have the ability, if we don't have the willingness, if we don't have the gumption to honor the Great Commission, to tell people about Christ, the problem isn't God's. And the problem isn't the Holy Spirit of God. He longs to see souls saved. The problem is ours. If we are not passionate about the things that God's passionate about, it's not the Holy Spirit's problem. It's our problem. We're ignoring our best friend. We are resisting his presence. We don't like him talking to us, confronting us, and revealing to us that what we're doing is not acceptable. These are somewhat redundant, but each one is specifically stated in some way in John. He is a personal friend. And by this, I mean that he is somebody that we can get acquainted with. Somebody that we can, so to speak, walk with. Somebody that we can talk to. Somebody that we can interact with. Somebody that we can respond to. We all know what it's like to have a personal friend. Somebody that's there for us. Somebody that we interact with. Verse 17 of John 14 says, The world, the unsaved, do not know him, but we can know him because he dwells with us and shall be in us. That is, we can become acquainted with him. We can get to know him. We can get to understand him. We can learn to hear his voice. If I have a close friend, it takes a while to get to know them. I start out by noticing them, and maybe there's something about their character or manner that attracts me to them, and I learn their name, and eventually I have a conversation with them. And then because we spend time together, we become better acquainted. And as we get better acquainted, we find out what makes that person happy. We find out what makes them upset. We find out what they like, and we find out what they don't like. We might even ask them, hey, what's wrong today? They'll shrug it off and say nothing. You look them straight in the eye and say, uh-uh, I can tell. I know you too well. Have we ever, have we ever, have we ever said to the Spirit of God, what's wrong? And I suspect that we would hope that the Spirit of God say nothing. Everything's okay. But everything's not okay. He's grieved. Because his convincing power in our life has been quenched. Do we know when the Spirit of God is upset with us? Do we even notice it? Many have said it before me. If the Holy Spirit of God did not show up in a church, most churches would not miss him. I don't think that's true here. And that's why I'm a little bit more concerned than some places in preaching this 
message because we've heard so much about the Spirit of God and we've surrendered our lives and we've sensed some measure of walking in the power of the Spirit of God. But I am telling you, it's easy to get careless. It's easy to get, ignore his voice. It's easy to indulge ourselves in the little things. And we never stop and say what's wrong. We need to learn to embrace our best friend because he's a promised friend. He's a present friend and he's a personal friend. He's somebody that we can get acquainted with. He's also a permanent friend. No matter what some theologies teach, you're not getting rid of him. You're not getting rid of him. She might as well learn to get along with him. He's a permanent friend. He shall be with you because he is in you. You're sealed by that spirit of God. He dwells inside every child of God. If we'd pay half as much attention to the Holy Spirit as we do some of our other friends, we would be living in victory. If we would text him as much as we text others, we'd be living in victory. If we checked with him, we'd be living in victory, but we just don't do it. We get careless. You can't get rid of him. He's there with you. And he's going to stay. Our responsibility is to yield to him, to surrender to him to rejoice in his conversations that he has with us, to touch base with him as often as we can. That Holy Spirit is everywhere speaking to us. We go outside. We drive down the highway. We get into a conversation with some friends. We walk into a classroom as students in a Christian school or a public school. We walk into a group of ladies fellowshipping. A group of men gossiping. Ladies always get blamed for it, so I thought I'd put it on the guys this time. <laughs> and if the Holy Spirit is in charge of your life, you are immediately sensitive to what's going on. And you're not just sensitive, but the best friend you have has taught you how to respond. He's a permanent friend. And he's a preaching friend. We've already talked about that. But the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to speak to us, to communicate to us. We get a sense of the personality of the Holy Spirit in John chapter 16. It's needless that I go away. If I don't go away, the comforter will not come. When he's come, he will reprove the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Why? Because he hates it. He wants nothing to do with it. Verse 13, howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself. But whatever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show things unto you. He shall glorify me, Christ said. Now, folks, a real good litmus test, though sometimes we're not even sensitive to know if we are or aren't, aren't but if something you're doing isn't pleasing Christ, the Holy Spirit didn't do that. The Holy Spirit didn't direct that. Holy Spirit didn't guide you to make that response or make that decision. 
In verse 26, we're told that the Holy Spirit will teach us all things, bring all things to our remembrance. I think that's back in John chapter uh, 14, 26. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to remembrance whatsoever I've said unto you. Folks, I'm telling you, we're not being honest with ourselves. We go and ask people for advice, and I'm not saying there's never a time we need counsel or advice, and Brother Visser will give you some phenomenal tools to work with. But I'm telling you, we're not being honest with ourselves. We're not truly yielding ourselves to the Spirit of God. I asked our high school students on Thursday, I asked our church on Wednesday, if we don't learn to walk with the Holy Spirit, what are we going to do in these dark days? I got done speaking in that high school assembly and one of our students that is quite spiritually minded, quite focused, helps lead a prayer meeting that the students put together on Mondays and Fridays. But he came to me and I talked about the news twisters in the book that came out in 1971, 355 pages, communicating to us that the news is deliberately twisting its story to propagate an agenda. And I'll tell you what, even though Christians said amen when they heard the preaching about it, I don't think any of us really believed to what extent they would effectively change the dialogue of what really happens in the news. But this young man came to me right after chapel and he said, so how do we know the truth? And his dad is politically engaged. He's chief deputy clerk of Martinsville, graduate of our school, spiritually minded. He said, he said how do we know the truth? And I said, all I can tell you is what I said, the spirit of truth will reveal the truth. And folks, sometimes that's all we have. And I understand that we're going to misjudge things and I'm going to understand. But I'm saying the less I contaminate my mind with the, with the, um, with the, for, uh, what am I trying to say? Artificial money, what's it called? Yeah. Counterfeit. The more we contaminate ourselves with the counterfeit news, both from conservatives and liberals. You listen to me for just a minute. The more we consume that stuff and listen to it and try to dissect it and pull it apart and figure out what's really going on, most of it not footnote noted, most of it not adequately uh, substantiated. We are going to be confused. And I'm saying we have a spirit of God that can help us navigate the waters that are uncharted. I'm sure I'm going to make mistakes as a pastor at the Martinsville Baptist Tabernacle. But I'm saying I'm going to be guided a whole lot better listening to the Holy Spirit than to the news. I'm saying, folks, we just got to get our mind around this. I'm not trying to attack you, but I, I do get a little weary of the emails and the videos and the news clips sent to me. I don't open most of them. I hate to discourage you if you're one of the people that sends them to me. But I'm really not that interested. Because even the best of people tend to have an agenda. The Holy Spirit is a preaching friend. He will guide us into truth. He will direct us in the decisions that we need to make. He'll tell us to stop. He'll tell us to start. He'll tell us to separate. 
He will tell us to remove ourselves, to include ourselves. He will tell us how to respond in the unsettled circumstances of life. That's why the Bible says, walk in the spirit. You'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You won't make wrong decisions. It's the flesh that's contrary to the spirit of God. Causes us to do things that we shouldn't. God tells us it's impossible for Christians to do what's right if they won't walk in the spirit. You cannot do the things that you would. Yes, you must be saved. If you're not saved, you don't have the spirit of God. But if you are saved, the spirit of God dwells within you. One of the prayers that has captured my attention for about five years now is to pray for the community of Martinsville by asking God to breathe upon every faint but glowing ember in the hearts of the lives of people in Martinsville. What I mean by that, if they are saved, the Spirit of God is there no matter how much they've neglected Him, no matter how much they've rejected Him, He's there. And I believe that we are beginning to see God move in some unusual ways in the midst of our community and stirring some hearts in ways that I wouldn't have probably expected. But you see, people that have trusted Christ, have the Spirit of Christ, and those faint but glowing embers need to be breathed upon. They need to be fanned into a flame that becomes a passionate fire with a heart to serve God. Today I'm not talking about just any friend. For of all sad words of tongue or pen, the saddest of these, it might have been. I'm talking about the Spirit of God that God promised that Christ knew the disciples needed. In the Great Commission in Luke, Jesus Christ said, make sure you tarry in Jerusalem until you receive the promise of the Father. Best decision those disciples made was to tarry in Jerusalem. And I'll tell you what, when that Spirit of God came upon them, everything was different. Souls were saved, lives were changed, people that cowered at the crucifixion of Christ stood boldly. Until Acts chapter 5, verse 19, we read, you filled Jerusalem with your doctrine after we straightly commanded you not to teach in his name. Yahweh go. This church could have a phenomenal impact, and you are, I understand, in this area. But I wonder if we're as passionate as we should be. I wonder if we're as excited as we could be about the Spirit of God and what God's doing. I wonder if we talk as often as we should about what God's doing and how Christ is working, how lives are being surrendered and people are being saved and folks are being called into the ministry. Folks, there's nothing that should get us stirred like the working of God in the midst of the church. And you're in a church where God's working. little boy was flying a kite. Those weren't supposed to come up like that. I was supposed to be able to push the button and they'd come up one at a time. So you got the punchline. 
The wind was blowing, the kite was small, and the boy was letting it go out further and further and further until it was out of sight. A man watching him standing there like this said, what are you doing, son? He said, I'm flying a kite. Man says, how do you know? You can't see it. He said, yeah, but I can feel its tug. Ah, oh, come on. Come on. If you're a child of God, you can feel the tug of the Spirit of God. L.G. Broughton, writing an earnest worker years and years ago, was in Washington, D.C. Writing this, he said, I was riding on a streetcar. I observed that the mortarmen could easily make the car go slow or make it go fast. When we come to a cross, he noticed that he, by a touch of the handle, the car would almost stop and yet would not quite stop, but barely go creeping along like a snail. Then all at once, the motorman would touch the handle again and the car would go almost at a rate of a mile a minute. That's 60 miles an hour. I didn't know streetcars went that fast. He said, I got curious to know how the thing was done. I said to myself, I can't see how it is that he touches that wire. And all he does, I can't see how it is that if he touches that wire, at all he does not get the power that there is in the powerhouse. This was copied directly, but something's not quite right there. But he's saying, I couldn't understand how he moved that handle one way. The street guard would go quickly and he moved it the other way. He'd go so slow. So he said, I asked him why. He said, when I want to go slow, I squeeze this handle right here. It opens the mouth that grips the wire so that it just barely touches it. When I want to go fast, it turns loose and grips the wire and gets all the power in the powerhouse. We call the first skinning the wire. Broughton said, I thought to myself, I've got 2,000 members in my church that are just skinning the wire. They've never done anything but skin the wire. In probably about nine-tenths of our churches, I say this with intense sadness in my heart, nine-tenths of the churches in the country are skinning the wire. A street streetcar runs on 6,000 volts, but there is the powerhouse, all the power of heaven available to us as God's people. It's at our disposal. If we'll only grip the wire with the trolley of faith, trouble is our faith is weak and we just skin the wire. We're talking about spirit-filled truth, yielding to the power of God. We need to stop skinning the wire. The Holy Spirit, though it's not specifically stated in John chapter 16, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, tells us that he is a powerful friend. But ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Folks, I'm wondering tonight if we need to reacquaint ourselves with the Holy Spirit. If you're here this evening and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, you don't have the Holy Spirit, I would invite you to respond to God's wooing, his drawing you to himself. And come and receive Christ as your Savior. Forgiveness of sins, newness of life. But for many of you, I'm sure you have a testimony of salvation. I'm asking you to ask yourself, have you been skinning the wire? Do you only find the Holy Spirit convenient when you're in a desperate situation? Do we find ourselves desperately longing to cling to him with all we're worth? 
yielding to him, trusting him, depending upon him to help us and direct us. I'm asking us, are we skinning the wire? Are we gripping with the arm of faith the promise of God that we have a friend that goes with us because he's in us? Father, I pray that you would help us tonight to respond to you. Lord, we need the presence and power of the Spirit of God. We need his wisdom. We need his help. This nation is in trouble. We know that. But our churches need not be in trouble. The gospel has the same power. The God that we serve has not been displaced from his throne. The work that you want to do through your children is not hindered by persecution or freedom. It's simply hindered by our unwillingness to yield to the Spirit of God who is in us and with us. Lord, I pray that we would come before you and renew our commitment to walk in the Spirit, that we would not fulfill the lust of the flesh.